to Very Amusing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and baby, I'm back in California! I'm home. I did not somehow perish under the pounds and pounds of sugar that I digested between Colorado and California. But wow, what a road trip. I highly recommend the next time you have to do 14 hours of something you dread to just fill it with hourly treats. It really made it just fly by. I don't think my husband would say the same, but... I don't know, having a glove compartment full of pink frosted cookies because apparently the soda place Swig has a, like a long-standing fight with the gross, it's like a, what do you call it, convenience store, gas station convenience store, Dutchman's. There's this like pink frosted cookie battle happening in this town, St. George, Utah, which is like full of all the mecca of food that I ate. It was wild. Always solving mysteries on the road, you know, doing what I can, taste testing, reviewing, doing my job while the park is closed in California because what else is what I do. Now, if you're wondering what was my favorite treat of the trip, I saved a highlight on my Instagram stories. You know, the bubble that is just above the feed. Oh my God, I can't believe I just called it a bubble because my mom calls them Instagram bubbles. And I'm always like, that's not what you call them. They're called stories. And I just said bubble. Wow. I'm never going to hear the end. <laughs> Of that one. But anyway, it's the little circle, not a bubble, a circle that has a highlight of my food eating reel, I suppose. Just a, just a whole lot of stuff. And I think that maybe the soda place was my favorite, but you'll just have to watch a woman eat too much food to find out. Anyway, I am back in California, as I said, and I am gearing up for Yom Kippur tomorrow. So I'm recording this a few days in advance, which doesn't usually happen. It's usually a little closer to the wire. But for those who don't know, uh, tomorrow is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement in the Jewish religion. And it's like, it's the big one. It's the holiest of days. So it's very, very serious. And it's a little strange to be endlessly talking about theme park food when I'm about to attempt to not eat for a full day. So the way it works is that you're supposed to fast and like, we're talking like no water, no food from sundown on Sunday till sundown on Monday. And if you're listening to this now, this would have been earlier this week, but you also like can't wear leather. You can't brush your teeth. You can't work. You can't shower. If you're super religious, you keep all of those. And usually it ends up where you sit in temple for six hours, seven hours. I can still feel the feeling of finally rolling down a pair of black tights off my body as I did every year forever and ever and ever and ever throughout my childhood. Just very tight tights in temple all day. I mean, it is like the best feeling in the world to take off tights after a long, long day. Second only to perhaps blissfully eating one gigantic meal that night. But still, it is burned into my brain. And because I am in California, I will be wearing more of a dress stretch pant to sit at home and watch Zoom Temple. I I don't know. My my parents are in town for a different family-related reason that I'm not getting into. But we're going to be Zooming into services at a temple I've never been to. It's not the temple I went to as a kid. And just like sitting on the couch. 2020 is very weird. It's very, very weird. For anyone who is curious, the point of Yom Kippur is to basically ask forgiveness for all the bad stuff you did that year. You know, sins. Which for me is usually just gossiping. 
Like, I don't really think I've done anything cruel to anyone. And if I have, it was it was deserved. I mean, I think all I've done is snap at people who don't wear masks and gossip and maybe honk my horn at people who cut me off. Those are my core sins. So I will be focusing on that on Monday instead of spending 8 to 14 hours on Twitter, as I usually do. So good yuntif to anyone who honored the high holiday earlier this week. And shifting gears to something all of us share, the ultimate shock that it is the edge of October, people. October. And I'm determined to save the spooky season for myself. I bought this sack of Reese's Cups and ghosts and like other assorted peanut buttery chocolate things. And I realized that this is the first time in years that I won't have that stash of candy from Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party or Oogie Boogie Bash in the house. You know how you have like that slowly dwindling pile of candy that eventually gets down to Laffy Taffy and Craisins and nothing you actually want because you already ate all the chocolate? Not this year. Now people with kids, different experience, you have had a stash of candy for their entire childhood. But someone like me, a childless millennial, one might say, loved that as an adult, I could trick or treat and have all this candy and it was socially acceptable. And this year, I'm gonna have to buy myself like a big pants wearing old lady. So being as I'm mourning that I can't trick or treat within a theme park, I just channeled all that energy into decorating my house for the first time. The very first time. I'm not exaggerating. The very first time. As you could probably infer from that little high holiday blurb at the top, I don't celebrate Christmas and I'm not the type of person to understand how a tablescape works. So I've never decorated for Thanksgiving, for holidays, for Halloween, nothing. And I went, um, I went pretty hard. I went pretty hard. We've gotten a lot of deliveries of pumpkins, more than I want to admit. And I'm not talking like like gourds from a pumpkin farm wherever pumpkins are born, but like plastic pumpkins with jack-o'-lantern faces in them that take 400 AA batteries to light up for one night of the year. Now, the inspiration for my entire house, I have it like themed out room by room. Can you tell I miss the Haunted Mansion? <laughs> Anyway, the entryway is like a pumpkin patch. So it has all of those big plastic pumpkins that I put batteries in and will never turn on because I'm scared I'll forget to turn them off. And then I got these real pumpkins at the grocery store that are kind of straight out of Cinderella and carriage ready. They're so like big and it's phenomenal. They're amazing. I'll post a photo of them online sometime, but they are majestic. And I can't believe that they came out of nature because they're green and orange and yellow and fall colors. It's phenomenal. So once you enter the house, you go through the pumpkin patch and you step on a light up ghost mat that I bought because my friend Chelsea recommended it. Styled by Magic on Instagram. If any of you also follow her, she's the best. Uh, She posted it and I bought it five minutes later. So you step on this and it lights up. It's real fun. And then you enter the necromancy lair, which is just a fancy, fancy name for me buying anything creepy, spooky, like snakes and skulls and potion bottles that I saw on the internet. I have to put some more spider webs around it because right now it looks somewhat normal. Like it just looks like I have some real creepy taste, but we'll get there. And then in the living room, I bought all of those cute pumpkins at Target, like by in the TV area. I guess it's all a living room when you're, you know, sheltering at home for almost a year. But I bought like the knit. They're kind of uh, like knit, kind of straw. Though, and the other ones look like pineapples. If you're a Target person, you know what I'm talking about. And I bought them all and put them by the TV and in the kitchen. 
And wow, I fully get why people get into this. It's like my home is wearing a costume and I love it. I'm so excited to know what season it is just by watching The Office for the thousandth time and looking at the TV instead of, you know, seeing my calendar like I did before I recorded this and realizing how quickly time is passing. It's... <laughs> It's a lot. But enough pumpkin patch fancies. Let's get into this week's episode. If you missed last week's, now don't worry, you can absolutely listen to these out of order. The two do fit together, but if you skipped last week's, listen to this and then go back to that one. I mean, don't you want to know how butterbeer was invented? And the impressive reason why Wizarding World's fish and chips are so good? And how really good leadership led to the coolest Magic Kingdom dessert on offer? Okay, I know I know. the point of this was to tell you to stay here and not go back to that one, but just don't skip it all together is all I'm saying. Now, this episode of Everything You Don't Know About Theme Park Food Part 2 delivers. Not only do we have interviews with some of the best names in theme park food reporting and things like secret restaurants and recipes, but we also solve some food mysteries. Trust me, you want to stay till the end to hear all of this. No one else is going to deep dive on the tiniest theme park minutia like we are obsessed with. So I think if you are interested, you are going to love this one. So let's get into it. News is up next. And then we're getting into all things Disney and Universal theme park yummies from the people who dedicate their lives to discussing them. Does anyone else feel like discussing the week's theme park news is just another reminder that Disneyland is not yet open? California is really trying to open. I mean, you have Disney Parks head Josh Tomorrow saying we're ready and it's time publicly. You have a commercial out. Literally, a commercial is out right now pushing Anaheim to reopen because Governor Gavin Newsom won't do it. He won't do it. So it's it's a real interesting back and forth, especially when compared to what's happening in Florida. Now, as all of you probably know by now, Governor Ron DeSantis announced that Florida would be entering phase three, which basically means that he decided COVID-19 is over, even though it is not. It's not. Like, gyms are allowed to be at 100% capacity. Certain restaurants and bars and nightclubs can be at 100% capacity. It's a lot. But with that announcement came a lot of confusion. And it appears that Orange County, which is the main county where the theme parks are located, that their mask mandate will stay in place. Uh, That is of yesterday. I don't know what day of the week it is. That is of yesterday, Monday, that that will remain. I know that there was some discussion that it wouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the most important thing about all of that to know for this is that while everything outside of Walt Disney World Resort and Universal Orlando Resort, while those rules may be changing, while people may be packed into restaurants and bars, et cetera, et cetera, Disney and Universal control what they own. They're on private property and they can have any security procedures that they want. The ones that were in place for their reopening were not set by the government. The government approved them, but the parks themselves set them. So this doesn't mean that automatically something like Tiffin's or Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar, like these locations are not going to be packed and packed and packed with people. Disney and Universal are still allowed to control what happens on their property. So I will be covering it mostly in my weekly column for sci-fi, 
But stay tuned because it does affect the workers and anything happening outside in the community. If anyone is traveling from around Florida, it means that they're possibly traveling from something that may in the future be deemed a super spreader event. I know that Orange County, I wrote about it last night for my sci-fi column, but Orange County is currently looking into a few super spreader events not related to the phase three announcement. But when you gather a lot of people, as we know now, in a small space, COVID-19 can spread more easily and, sadly, more thoroughly. Now, on to better, brighter news. Tokyo Disneyland's Beauty and the Beast expansion is so dope. I am... I I can't even say I am going because who knows what is happening with the world. But I am supposed to go May 2021 back to Tokyo. TBD, I suppose. I may just have airline miles held in a little in a little pouch for the rest of my life because so many trips have been canceled. But I'm not watching any ride through footage. I'm trying to just stay clear and only look at the food and the merch because I want to experience it firsthand when I'm at the park, question mark. But everything that TDR Explorer has posted is incredible. You guys know Chris. He was on the show. We've talked about Olu. You can't really mention Olu without mentioning him. But everything he's posting is so cool, including that Beauty and the Beast popcorn bucket. Oh, my God. And there's a whole popcorn shop that opened with a popcorn fixture. If you follow me on social media, you've already seen me scream about this so much that I think I went hoarse because I was so there's a whole shop. There's a whole popcorn shop. I can't think about it. I can't think about it stuck in America that I can't just blow some money and fly on a plane to get there within the next day. It's very upsetting. Anyway, the biggest news of the week, dun, 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 is Universal Orlando finally acknowledging that gigantic coaster they're building in Islands of Adventure. Because before it was just supposed to be a secret, as though wrapping the ride vehicles in a white material hides them like ghosts. Methinks no, that's not how that works. But that coaster is like raring and ready to go and will be opening to the public summer 2021. Now, the name is Jurassic World Velocicoaster. And I am extremely excited for it. It is bonkers. Like, it is a real major, major, major thrill ride. Not that they don't have those. Not that Hulk is is a bunch of nothing, because that's a great coaster, too. But, oh, my gosh. This Velocicoaster, this is it. And I cannot wait, cannot wait to get my butt in that seat. On a sadder note, I suppose, but, you know, a happy note for people who value their safety, uh, D23 did announce this week that D23 Expo, which would have been held next year in 2021, will be moved to 2022. I am so thankful for this decision because a lot of us would feel compelled to go, especially someone like me who reports on news. A lot of news is announced at those panels and to be in those chairs side by side with people crammed in. Sometimes people have to sleep on the ground, packed in undernight. It is just not safe during a pandemic. And I applaud them for making the decision early to push it to 2022. So hopefully we can all enjoy our Disney fandom and our theme park fandom in a safe environment. Now, that's all we got for this week. So stay tuned for the rest of the episode, which I think you are going to flip over. Okay, you know that feeling that everyone knows something that you don't? For me, that used to be Quince. 
but no more. Quince is a truly astounding retailer, essentially carrying everything a person on your mood board would wear. We're talking washable silk blouses, chic leather bags, 14 karat gold jewelry, European linen dresses, and the best part of all is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're up here with $50 Mongolian cashmere sweaters. $50! Beautiful, timeless items you can wear and actually live in. Meaning, you don't have to be scared to bring them on your theme park travels. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And if you're sensitive to retailers like I am, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. But it's not just your everyday work-life clothes. They have everything. I recently joined a new gym, big deal for me, and desperately needed new workout clothes to wear there. It's kind of like an LA gym. It's like it kind of got to look cute. So I ordered a pair of their Ultraform bike shorts and high-rise pocket leggings. And when I tell you, the quality of these leggings is truly on par with brands I paid three times as much for, which really kind of makes me love these three times more. I'm not only going to buy them again, but actually buy the other travel stuff in my cart because they have things like beautiful pastel suitcases for 129 bucks and these wildly affordable compression packing cubes that I have been waiting forever to buy compression packing cubes and they're always so pricey and here the price fits. So if you want to get ready for work, your new gym, travel, anything in your life, go to Quince. Quince.com slash amusing will get you free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Ooh, that's nice for someone who puts stuff off like I do. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash amusing to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash amusing. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome, welcome to part two of our mini-series in all things theme park food. While last week dove deep into theme park treats and sweets with the people who create them, this week's episode is somewhat of the opposite view. Whereas part one was all about what happens internally, this week is centered around what's happening on the outside. We're chatting with reporters who've dedicated their lives to all things theme park food and even solving some mysteries about sweet treats, salty eats, and soft-serve snacks. Listen to the end. Trust me, you don't want to miss all of this. But first, before all that, before the bulk of the episode, we have to discuss the NBA. Yes, that NBA, whose players are still currently living at Walt Disney World as they play out the rest of the season. The Great Bubble Experiment has so far proved to go extremely well, save for that hideous tarp wall set up at the Grand Floridian. But there are so many unexpected parts to the NBA resuming at Walt Disney World that have happened this year. We got reporters living inside a shut-to-the-public Disney's Coronado Springs for months on end. We have basketball players having a dance party through their little window holes at the Grand Floridian. Remember that? It was so cute. We got health activity measured through a magic band. But the one thing the NBA bubble has 
that you may not know about is Disney World's most hyped coffee shop. I first stumbled upon this from the very good Instagram account, NBA Bubble Watch, and was shocked at what I found. Apparently, one of the players opened up his own coffee shop, and then shortly thereafter, another competitive shop opened up, both within the bubble, exclusive to the NBA? Now, I usually consider myself an expert when it comes to Walt Disney World, but an annexed portion of a Disney hotel filled with athletes is well outside my purview. So naturally, I had to get an expert on the horn to tell me what on earth was going on with this most exclusive cup of coffee on Disney property. Enter Jason Concepcion of The Ringer. He's a hilarious and brilliant sports reporter who hosts NBA Desktop, an award-winning weekly show, which, if you haven't seen their Disney-themed episode, it's in the show notes. Watch it after this. And he so graciously hopped on the helpline to explain this major crossover between basketball, coffee, and Disney. Thank you so much for coming on my show. I have tried to track this NBA (laughs) bubble coffee shop thing, and I don't know the people involved. I don't know how it works. I know nothing. So I had to basically phone a friend slash extreme expert and bring you on to explain it to everyone like me who has no clue what's going on. Okay, well, very simply, Jimmy Butler, who is a member of the Miami Heat and a coffee... uh, fanatic a coffee fan he uh last season had uh, a set of branded coffee cups that he was taking everywhere that personally branded anyway he started a, a small business inside the bubble called big face coffee um with his french press and he, basically everything the prices are exorbitant everything is 20 bucks but and you can get like you can get pour over, you can get a latte, you can get uh, an americano, etc. Et but it's all twenty, every size twenty dollars. Now, that said, inside a, a theme park such as Disney, I'm not sure that price is crazy in comparison <laughs> to what uh, to what you would pay for a coffee from whatever vendor would have coffee available inside the bubble. That said, uh, it is a little steep for people who, say, aren't on a uh, NBA player's salary. So a competitor uh, sprung up, Brandon Gilliam, who is one of the Miami Heat's uh, assistant trainers, uh, started a business called Small Face Coffee, and everything is $5, and you get the first cup free. Uh, And also, uh, Gilliam... is also engaging in some maybe, I, I guess you could say shady business practices in the sense that uh, he has a whiteboard up with testimonials like Eric S., which is Eric Spolstra, says, you know, the, I, I forget what the actual quote is, but what a wonderful cup of coffee. And now the issue is that none of the people quoted on the whiteboard actually said the thing. <laughs> and so they're... So that's what's going on. We have these two small businesses competing for uh, for for coffee drinkers inside the bubble. And 
what is the foot traffic like at this? Is it like a Starbucks at 7.30 a.m. at the drive-thru with like a bunch of people waiting? Because they only if he only has a French press and the other dude is selling it for cheap. I, this is exact. Well, they're both using French presses. OK, so this is a thing I covered on my show, NBA Desktop. How much what is the what is the bandwidth that you could really get out of a French press? You're talking about like maybe five cups Per press. Now that being said, it seems like most of the traffic. Now I'm I'm getting most of this from a story on ESPN.com by Malika Andrews has covered this story wonderfully. Uh, it, it seems like most of the traffic is their teammates and Heat staff, so it's not crazy. So, you know, Jimmy Butler is serving to like Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic, you know, players, and it seems like the um, trainers, assistant coaches, people who maybe don't want to be spending twenty, forty, sixty dollars of uh, on cups of coffee per day, and not only that, but paying that money into the coffers of of their coworker and you know, colleague who's a millionaire are going to Gilliam's shop and taking advantage of the, of the more uh, customer friendly prices there. So it seems like probably not a huge amount of traffic. If I had to put a number on it, I'm guessing it's like four to five customers per shop per day. Oh, my gosh. And have you heard any stories of any? Uh, granted, I know nothing about sports, which you are aware sure. of. Uh, have there been any instances of people who are maybe a competitor to the player <laughs> who has a shop going specifically to the other shop to spite him? No, this is only this is only uh, one team that is doing this right now. Jimmy Butler of the Miami Heat and and Mr. Gilliam, the trainer of the Heat. Now, that said, oh, wait, they're on the both. They're on the same team. They're on the same team. <gasps> so it's the tra assistant trainer for the team and the player for the team are competing against each other. But again, you know, like as you would as you well know, uh, covering the world of of Disney and the different offerings for lodging, say in, in Disneyland and Disney World, there are different price points. And therefore, these these two establishments are competing for different customer bases. I think that you could you could fairly say they have different brands, right? Jimmy's is a, the more luxe upscale version and then Gilliam's is the more downscale like everyday cup of coffee, black coffee, let's not get too crazy about it. Now they both are essentially sponsored once this story started getting out, Dunkin Donuts and various other independent coffee roasters have been sending these people beans. So they have What? They have no shortage of beans. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because I thought that the whole deal would be like, this dude knows his coffee, he sources these specific beans, etc. I did not know a corporate entity had crawled in and tried to set up a Dunkin' out of a hotel room at Disney World. That's exactly. That's exactly what... Well, although I will say that Butler seems to have a custom blend sent to him by, by an independent uh, coffee roaster, um, while... Gilliam appears to be using straight Dunkin' Donuts at this time. But again, most of both of them have sourced suppliers and are getting their product essentially for free. So it's all profit at this point. Oh, my gosh. And I assume that the coffee shop has continued when they moved hotels to Grand Destino. Yeah, it would seem that that would be the case. And again, because we're in terms of competition... We're in the finals now. We were in the East, we were in the conference finals. So there were only four teams as of a few days ago. There were only four teams left in the bubble, and now there are only two: the Lakers and the Heat. So competition is is scarce. It's just this 
intra-team competition between Jimmy Butler and, and Gilliam. Wow. But I mean, if you're LeBron James or someone like that, are you really going to go to your competitor for your cup of coffee? Do you he's trust do them? It. They're not going to. He's not going to do it. And he's more of a wine guy. I don't think he's much more. It doesn't seem like he's much of a coffee guy. He seems like a wine guy from everything we know about uh, LeBron James. I wasn't 100% sure he was on the Lakers. So if I got, if okay. I got his beverage, it's okay. his you beverage it. references wrong, that's you why. It. You got it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is there anything else we should know about these underground coffee shops? Uh, that's it. Listen, you know, when this first when this story first started coming out, I thought it was I thought it was a bit. I'm like, how much is how much uh, business are they really doing? Are they really, um, you, you know, like it just seems like just a friendly collegial thing to do. Make your friends and colleagues a cup of coffee. But it seems like now it, it, it as per the stories that have emerged over the last few days, it really seems like a actual burgeoning business. Jimmy Butler has a big face coffee hoodie that he wears around the bubble. Like he has branded merchandise now. Oh my. So wait, it really oh seems. <laughs> Because I know that like the street style photos of them leaving Coronado right. Springs has been like a big moment. So he's like truly developing a brand while he's also about to maybe win a championship. Yes. Jimmy Butler has submitted paperwork to trademark Big Face Coffee, the name and logo. Like that's a real thing that's happening. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's gone to that level. And you can't like as us out us losers outside the bubble. We can't buy anything from this yet, right? There's no. no... That this is this is it is an extremely select clientele at this moment. But who knows? After the bubble, I mean, j listen, Jimmy has joked that after his playing career is over, he'll open a coffee shop and maybe he'll do a coffee roasters thing. It it may happen. This is incredible. Thank you so yeah. much no for problem. this slice of heaven. <laughs> Thank you for having me on, Carly. If we're going to talk about Disney food, it would be sacrilege to do so without talking about Disney food blog. Thankfully, AJ Wolf, who steers that ship, was game to hop on the phone to talk about some of the more obscure stuff than just the regular, somewhat relentless food news. It just doesn't stop. It's 24 hours a day at this point. Now, just to let you know up top, this episode is going to work a little differently than others. Because it's all about theme park food, but it's also about mini mysteries. Sorry, just let me rephrase that. Mini mysteries! That music, a legally dissimilar but inspired by theme of Mission Impossible, is a work of art on loan from Drew Taylor of Light the Fuse, one of my favorite podcasts about my favorite film franchise, Mission Impossible. You should all listen to it if you're a fan, and not just because I used him like my own personal rights-free music library. So, as you know on this podcast... We love to solve little theme park mysteries, and this episode gets into a bunch of them in the middle of interviews, after interviews, all throughout, even within this talk with AJ. But the first thing I wanted to discuss with her was Epcot festivals. I personally rarely cover them because... I'm not always there, and as I've said publicly before, I do not like temporary food, which is why it was perfect to chat with AJ Wolf, who knows every dish that has been sold at these things for the past 10 or however many years. Something I was personally curious about 
is how they set the menu for these events. And as I quickly learned, brands sometimes have more influence in what you eat in an Epcot food festival than you might expect. I think a lot of the time, based on my experience, you do have certain booths that are brought in because they are sponsored by the country that they represent or they are sponsored by a particular brand. So you see the, you know, the almond the almond booth sponsored by the almond company and the orange, you know, the strawberry booth sponsored by Driscoll's or whatever. So, you know, you saw that way back in the early days of, of food and wine as well. You know, I don't know if you remember the cranberry bog that was there for several years. I mean, I was this, it was the saddest ever when they took out the cranberry bog. Like when I heard they were not bringing the cranberry bog back, I was, I was in pain. <laughs> but that was an ocean spray sponsorship. So that drove that whole thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, when craisins were every, all of a sudden craisins were everywhere in Disney world, um, like every salad had craisins on it and everything was craisin flavored. That was when ocean spray and Disney had, had that big, you know, brand sponsorship going on. It's very hidden. Like you'll see the brand names listed on the menus, like the summer that all of a sudden cuties were everywhere, right? You saw the, you know, the little Mandarin orange, like the cuties were just all over the place. And yeah, so that, and, and Disney has always been brand sponsored, you know, you've always had, you know, hosted by Siemens or whatever, um, all over the place. And I think that is done in a subtle enough way that people, it still subconsciously influences you and impacts you, you know, like kitchen cabaret was craft, right? Like still eating craft cheese today because of kitchen cabaret, probably. It's no surprise that social media plays a huge factor in how eye-catching snacks at the parks are designed. We covered it in last week's episode. You've seen it with your own eyes, and probably if you're listening to this, tasted those obsession-forming eye-catching foods in the parks yourself. But it appears there may be more than just aesthetics at play. Now, if you remember, in part one, I spoke with Chef Robert Gilbert, culinary director of the Magic Kingdom, and he divulged that there is some serious strategy to where they place food throughout the different lands of the Magic Kingdom. His explanation detailed that they want to make sure their portfolio is balanced across the park and that one land doesn't have too many items as another does not. Also, the colors of the item have to go with the scheme of the land. So basically, the food has to fit not just the park, but the land it's sold within. AJ had a similar but more curious take on where items end up, adding that sometimes the placement of food, really, really Instagrammable food, may also influence where you go or at least guide you on your way. Here's AJ again. Food has become a destination for people going to Disney World. They are going to get the food instead of going just to ride the ride. And so Disney's definitely focusing a lot more on all of that. Do you think that's something that has been spurred from guest demand or from Disney providing it or both? The two feed each other. I think that once people started realizing that they could document their dining in this way and show other people what they were eating and that would become sort of like a, a, a like driver for them in their social media, um, that they were clamoring for more of it. And now Disney has figured out that, oh, okay, if we want to get someone to, to a particular area of the park, we put an Instagrammable item there and everyone will go there, right? Um, and so I think Disney's sort of 
catching it and saying, great, we will use this. Um, and the people who are actually documenting it are happy to go there and happy to, to, to use that. So I think they do feed each other a little bit. So you're saying that food is sometimes specifically placed in locations to kind of break up the flow of crowds. Disney hasn't told me that, but it certainly makes sense because every once in a while you'll see a brand new item put in a weird place at Animal Kingdom. And you're like, why do I have to go all the way across the park to this location where there's nothing else that I want to do there to get this item? So if they haven't thought about that, they should. Just FYI, Disney, if you're not using your food to to drive foot traffic, you should. That's so fascinating. I just, I always thought that they were so focused on following trends and making sure that everything was quote unquote Instagrammable, but I never thought about another layer of it being physically where it's sold. Yeah. Why, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Right? Like, you, you know, that in the middle, you know, in the morning you get a lot of foot traffic to this particular area of the park because everyone wants to ride that ride, but by afternoon they've moved away. So, okay, well, nobody's over by seven doors mine train in the late afternoon. So let's put a lot of stuff at Friars Nook so that people have to go there. You know, oh my God, I don't know. Again, this is just, this is, I don't work for Disney. Disney doesn't tell me this stuff, but if they're not doing that, then they should. <laughs> they should Dude, I'm just thinking about how I've been like in the middle of nowhere in animal kingdom being like, gotta go get a cinnamon roll just away from where <laughs> everyone else is in the park. It makes so much sense. Like why did we move the cinnamon rolls from main street bakery to way back to Gaston's tavern where you would never have any reason to go back there except for, Oh, the main street bakery cinnamon roll, the super, super popular thing has been moved back there. Whoa, mind meld, right? It makes sense. It just kind of makes sense. I'm not sure if that's what Robert Gilbert meant when he described where they place things. As far as our conversation went, I think he more so meant that the Peter Pan float shouldn't be in Tomorrowland and things like that. But AJ sure does make a compelling argument, which brings us to our first mini mystery. Okay, so to let you into the fold, this is something AJ and I have joked about for years. The extreme prevalence of popping pearls throughout Disney properties. You know those tiny little boba-like but not quite orbs that ooze out the goo juice? I've seen them in Pandora the World of Avatar. I've seen them in California Adventure. I've even seen them on Disney Cruise Line. And Vanellope's on the Disney Dream. They are everywhere! And AJ and I, well, I'll let previous us take it from here. I know that we had discussed this before, but I did Google around to be like, did they buy a popping pearl company? And I could <laughs> never find any receipts on it. I just like, right. it It doesn't add up how they're everywhere. Like Big Boba must have like gotten a stake in Disney. It's very interesting. No, popping pearls replaced craisins. Like, because craisins were everywhere. And then all of a sudden, popping pearls are everywhere. But there wasn't a specific brand. So I'm like, there's no sponsorship going on here. There does not appear to be a sponsorship at play, which makes the plot thicken. AJ went on to discuss how Disney also dove into trends like those little crispy pearls on desserts and when they had a serious push pop moment. But this baby boba popping pearl thing has driven me crazy for years. How did they get there? Where did they come from? And finally, at long last, I think I figured it out. 
Okay, that should probably be a James Bond theme song, but you know what? I don't want to get sued today, so it's not going to be. Anyway, thanks to Lisa of Vegan.Dynamite on Instagram, who reached out to Happiest Vegan on Earth. I believe we have an answer. An answer! Disney's popping pearls are supposedly tea pearls sold by Lolly Cup, a huge, huge, huge provider of restaurant supplies and kind of all things adjacent to boba. And they have them. They sell them right now in these big tubs in tons of fruit flavors. It's really cool to see them where they came from, you know? Again, I'm, I'm not really sure if Disney buys them directly from here or has a different supplier, but it seems like this is where they originate. And it's just nice to see them, you know, the little pearls that float around in that night blossom drink just in their true form, snoozing at home in a little juicy bucket. Disney did not, as I anticipated and hoped for, purchase a small popping pearl factory. But alas, we have a solution and another mystery is solved. As one door closes, another one opens because we have another mystery right around the bend. Here's AJ and I chatting it up about an iconic breakfast food, Mickey Mouse waffles, and why they're so different at sea. I do need to talk to you about why waffles are different on Disney Cruise Line. <laughs> I know. What is up with that? Why? I don't know why. But like, you are the one who brought the brand name waffle to our attention. I ordered it off your website so I could have, I believe it's golden malted. It is. <laughs> yes. I bought the golden malted mix. I was like, I'm making my waffles at home. They were fantastic. Did it in a Mickey maker, but they are significantly different on Disney Cruise Line. And I cannot figure out if it's something about the way the kitchen is doing it or if it's like truly a conspiracy theory so that you have to go to the parks to get a real waffle. Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't think you have to go to the parks. Don't they do it right at like Vero and stuff? Oh, yeah. Like a, like a Disney property. Like a Disney property. Yeah. Um. I, I honest, I genuinely don't know. My brain is going to, okay, you're doing international sourcing and stuff like that. But the ships that just go between, you know, Castaway Key and, and Port Canaveral, why can't we get just a bunch of cans of golden malted? Like, I don't understand. So, but they are different. That is, that is a legit concern. Um, and, and they also, they, they look weird. They look different. They're, they're not, yes. I, it's like, they're not using the same, um, but they do it right in Japan. This is what I'm talking about. When I've had them internationally, uh-huh. they're the same. The best waffle I've ever had was in Tokyo. Oh, so if, yeah. if the, the literal golden malted gold standard is Tokyo, how come the ships have some other ambiguous fake waffle? I, of course, set out to find the definitive answer to why waffles are so different on Disney Cruise Line. And I got to tell you, the answer is that they're not... I mean, I don't want to gaslight you and myself here, but I did a lot of research. A lot. I heard theories that they're pre-made and left on baking sheets and then replenished later, which is why they look so different, but that didn't hold up. I also heard it was something about humidity or the air quality at sea, which really didn't make any sense considering, you know, Florida. So I kept digging and someone who shall remain anonymous actually spoke with a Disney Cruise Line chef on my behalf. And they came back with quite the unexpected answer. See, I assumed it would be something like, oh, they're pre-made and frozen, which is an airtight solution. It would explain why the consistency is different, why they kind of look different. It all made sense. But no, they're all fresh. And they use golden malted, the same mix used at resorts and hotels and beyond. Who would have thought? 
So this mystery is both closed and reopened. It just kind of sits in time, not moving, because nothing is happening. There's no solution. I have no idea why they're different at sea, because they're made the exact same way with the exact same ingredients. So this one is technically solved, yet still utterly confounding. We'll take a break from the amateur powder sugar dusted case solving to dive into something completely different. A chat with Shay Spence. If you don't have his adorable face popping up on your Instagram feed, well, fix that. Because as fun as he is, Shay is also a food expert of all things theme parks and beyond. As the food editor at People Magazine, his background is both in editorial as well as actual cooking. He attended the Institute of Culinary Arts after college and has, thankfully for us, used his skills for our own entertainment, sharing the wild dishes he creates and even, as a self-proposed recipe truther, coming down on things like the pizza dilla, which he famously went viral for when he tried to recreate it. We chatted about some surprising Disney food ingredients, his churro theories, and one hot take that I will never, ever, ever get behind. One of the the most noteworthy things of this past summer, considering that time does not matter anymore, was your recreation of (laughs) Disney World's Toy Story Land grilled cheese. And I remember it was a huge deal because they used mayo instead of butter, which became a small debate. I, I would love to know more about that and kind of are there any other substitutions or differences that Disney does like that that surprised you? Okay, I'm ready to talk about this. So first of all, Woody's Lunchbox Grilled Cheese. It's the best in the business. Woody's Lunchbox, I think, is not currently open right now. So the best thing you could do is make it at home. And the first time I had it, I was like, this is the best freaking grilled cheese I've ever had in my life. It's so cheesy. (laughs) It's so melty. It's so crispy. And it's so buttery on the outside. Or so I thought. And then when Disney released this recipe, I I swear, Carly, I gasped. Because it was revealed... (laughs) That they use mayo instead of butter. And I don't know like how in tune you are with like food circles, but this has been a debate that's like come up in recent years. Um, I think Bon Appetit did a story about how you should use mayo instead of butter a while ago and got everyone talking. And I've always been, to me, it seemed like fixing a problem that never existed, right? Like, <laughs> like why, I didn't have a problem putting butter on the outside of my grilled cheese before. So why switch to mayo at this point? Until I did the Disney version. And I have to say, mayo is a good option. There are two main benefits to this. First of all, mayo is more spreadable. You don't have to soften it first like you do butter. Second of all, it has a higher smoke point. So you can get it really crispy on the outside and the cheese really melty on the inside without burning it. The fact of the matter is this... Grilled cheese is absurd. There's, first of all, a cream cheese spread with cheddar cheese that has heavy cream in the middle of four slices of cheese per sandwich, which is bonkers, but it does make a really good sandwich, and I guess that's the secret there. So that was a surprising swap. Here's one that most people might not know. Maybe people know it. Did you know that the best churros at Disney World are gluten-free? They're made with gluten-free flour. What? Yeah, okay. So have you been to Nomad Lounge in Animal Kingdom? Yes. Or as I call it, the best place to hide from your family and get drunk at Disney World. (laughs) 
accurate. I, I accurate. love the Nomad Lounge, <laughs> and they have those churros that are really, really, really good. They don't even advertise them on the menu as being gluten-free, but they swap it with one-to-one gluten-free flour instead of regular flour. And you would never know because they're so good. And let's face it, they're way better than the ones you get from the carts in the park, which cannot compare to Disneyland's. I don't know what they do differently, actually. Maybe this is something you can get your intel on, which is like, (laughs) do your Carly detective skills to figure out why Disneyland's churros are so much better than Disney World's. Here's one theory. This one floats around my Instagram DMs a lot, which is that the water in Florida at Disney World is not conducive to making good churros the way it is in Disneyland. Like a bagel mystery, like the whole you got to yeah. have the right water kinda, to boil a bagel. That that kind of thing. Hi, it's future Carly sneaking in on this conversation with former Carly and Shay. I just wanted to let you know that I did confirm that churros are apparently identical at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. There's not much more I can say about it because there is a secret I have to keep as part of that. But I will let you know that any preference between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, well, it might be based on humidity, but that's about it because they're the same product. Okay, back to Shay. Because a churro is, it's made with a choux pastry, which is the same thing you do to make like gougeres or eclairs. And so it's just water. Sure. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) As you know, I probably didn't pronounce those words right. I don't pronounce things very well. Um, Oh, it's the closest we're going to get to French (laughs) on this podcast. So you're an (laughs) all-star. Okay. Basically, water, flour, butter, and eggs. Water being a very big component of the churro. So I see where people are coming from. To me, it's just another excuse for like vile slander of the Disney World tap water, (laughs) which I love, but a lot of people don't like it. Do you know the difference? Uh, Do I know? It literally smells like eggs. Do I know a difference? It's well water. Do I know a difference? (laughs) What? (laughs) I love it. And there is a small community of us online that love the Disney World tap water. No, there's not. There is. Go through my DM. I'll show you. (laughs) I'm going to create the way that you did like your foam thing. I'm going to do a Disney World tap water group. I oh wait. Uh, no, no, no. This is more important than anything we have scheduled to discuss. <laughs> you are both a fan of the Disney water and there are other people like you? That is correct. Yes. You drink it like straight out of the water bottle All and you're like, yum. I think it tastes good. I like the flavor. I'm not going to apologize. Wow. Okay. What else are we talking about now that we've gotten the water um, out of the way? <laughs> well, generally, I just want to talk to you about theme park food because you you do the type of thing where you go to the park and eat all of it for review, which mm-hmm. a few of us do, but you also have a culinary background. So yeah. while I'm there being like, cheese is good, cheese is bad, like you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> so is there is there anything of note in like Disney food technique or preparation that might surprise some theme park fans? A couple things. I want Maybe we'll hit on the most popular foods. First off, I was well into my Disney food fandom before I realized that Dole Whip was vegan. It never would have occurred to me. It's so creamy. And basically, it's just a lot of chemicals and stabilizers, which is why it's like that. But I I just assumed it it had some sort of cream component. So I think that's surprising. I think most Disney fans know that. I've done a lot of experimenting with at-home Dole Whip during quarantine, as one does. I found that there's there's a really easy way to make Dole Whip at home without all the chemicals, but you need one chemical, and it's xanthan gum. 
Have you ever heard of this? Yes, but only from doing a milk bar cooking class where everything was like a scientific ingredient. Right. So it's more popular now. You can find it at grocery stores. They do it for gluten-free baking a lot, but it's a thickener and it's a stabilizer. And so if you add that to pineapple juice, coconut milk, not the canned stuff though, the carton, because it's less coconut flavored, some sugar and xanthan gum, and then you put that in the ice cream maker, that is the best way to replicate Dole Whip at home. I feel like one of the biggest, most notable Disney food myths is that um, the turkey legs are not really turkey, which we know they've debunked. They said it was like, people would say it was emu meat. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, amazing. Um, so I think that the turkey leg, so they're, they keep their processes pretty under wraps at Disney. Like they release these recipes and who knows how accurate they are compared to how they're made in the parks. But um, the turkey legs are made with a salt brine they inject into the turkey leg. And then they're smoked for like a day, which is why they're super like pink on the inside and people get really skeeved out by turkey legs because they almost look like they're raw or something's not right. But um, it's the same way that most places will make like a ham. So I think that's interesting and in my opinion, delicious. Uh, I will say I like the universal turkey legs better at Jurassic. Uh, I think they have great turkey legs. It's a great product. I highly recommend. about secret spaces. We covered that in episode one. And we know all about Club 33, which we'll cover another time. But there is another fancy restaurant that normal people like us simply can't get inside. Golden Oak, the planned community of luxury homes on Disney soil, is known for its multi-million dollar houses and luxurious amenities. It's infamously exceptional, offering well-heeled Disney fans the ability to own their glorious homes right in the center of Disney magic. If you've ever driven through, perhaps, to the Four Seasons Resort Orlando at Walt Disney World Resort, you've seen what I'm talking about. An impeccable collection of meticulously manicured homes, each different and custom-built, but somehow still cohesive. Disney is baked into everything there, even if it's not completely obvious, as homes line streets like Hyperion Lane, named after Hyperion Avenue, the early location of Walt Disney Studios, and Carthay Drive, named for Carthay Circle Theater, where Snow White and the Seven Dwarves first debuted. It's a lovely little place if you can swing it, but what many don't know about is their private guests-only restaurant, Markham's, which is quite possibly the toughest Disney dining reservation to get anywhere. You can't just walk into this clubhouse and sit down. You need to be part of Golden Oak. You need to own one of these extremely special homes to even sit down to have dinner. Now, I've only dined there once for a very special media event and have never and probably will never be invited back. That's just how it is. Luxurious, secretive, and open to but a select lucky few. My next guest, however, has been there and has done, well, everything there is to do at Golden Oak short of buying a home. Valerie Marino, a fellow theme park reporter and close friend of mine, wrote an extensive story exclusively about Golden Oak and is kind of the 
go-to person to talk about these spaces, particularly about this exclusive and elusive restaurant. So naturally, I needed to call her up and have her on to share what it's like inside those very, very cool walls. So when you go in, you walk through Tyler's, which is the bar, and then Markham's is the bigger space behind there that has like sort of an open kitchen situation. Yes, that's where I ate. But it was like a dinner series. We didn't actually like have a proper meal. Right, right. Which is all that I could find. So when I was doing research for the story, all I could find, there are Yelp reviews for Markham's, which is just wild to me. But it's people who went as part of like a DVC event or something that they they don't live there. Like the people who live in Golden Oak aren't reviewing Markham's on Yelp. But then there are these these reviews that are utter garbage because no one can go there and have that dinner because it was a special thing. Oh, my God. That's so (laughs) funny. I do love the idea, though, of someone with a multi-million dollar house on Disney property being like, I need to give them four stars because the service was not exceptional. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I'm definitely gonna have to check that Yelp page out. Oh, yes. Uh, but I would love to know about your experience at the restaurant, if you can recall it. The meal sounded great. It sounded like you guys had a fabulous time. It was really nice. Um, so full disclosure, I was there as part of a press group. So I was on a trip that was looking at, you know, all the different benefits of being a homeowner in Golden Oak. So one of the things was we got to go and have this dinner. And there were maybe six or eight of us. And, you know, it wasn't a special menu or anything like that. We all ordered off menu and, but it was, I do remember. So my husband, Kevin got the steak and I think he said it was the best steak he's ever had on Disney property, which is unfortunate because no one else can eat it. (laughs) So of course it's one of, it's one of, it's just one of those things that like, you feel like a jerk even writing about it because it's like, all right, you want to have this great steak. Drop two million for a home (laughs) and it can be yours. (laughs) Do you feel like the steak is worth buying property for? No. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, no, I don't want to be drowning in debt to try to buy a luxury house in Florida. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But no, it was it was just a really nice meal. One of the things that I distinctly remember is um, I wanted to order the calamari appetizer but I had a scarring um, episode as a child with calamari and I I only eat the rings. I don't eat the tentacles. And I, (laughs) so I made a special request and they didn't even blink, you know? And I mean, maybe that's just a nice restaurant thing that they are just very accommodating, but they, they were very happy to fulfill my rings only request for the calamari. And it was delicious. Oh my God. I didn't even know you could do things like that. Cause I am a tentacle person. Oh, so we, we can I mean, share. we should be obviously be sharing calamari. Yes. <laughs> wow. Oh yeah. They're probably just used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do something that stands out to me, which is so small and dumb is that they have those beautiful monogrammed napkins with like a golden oak insignia. Oh my gosh. How is, many pictures did I take of the napkins? I loved it. Cause that's such a, I don't know, a grand Floridian thing. Mm-hmm. So you have like that Disney vibe of branding, except that it's permanent home ownership. It just seems <laughs> so interesting to me. And it's such a, um, it's such a perfect thing with the, with the subtle branding because within, so the golden oak logo is this golden tree and then within the tree is the little hidden mickey wait i didn't know there was a hidden mickey in it yes (laughs) there's always a hidden mickey yeah i'm pretty sure you can tell from that interview that we're very close friends (laughs) 
I don't usually talk like that with professional interview subjects, but we're pals and I love Valerie, so it's totally fine. Now, there are really only a couple ways to get into Markham's. One is by going to a Disney Vacation Club event, if you're a member, but there have really only been a few of them, so not that many people have gotten in that way. The other way is by attending Delicious Disney, a chef series, which is this low-key, kind of under-the-radar, elegant-themed meal geared towards the Club 33 type of clientele, but it's open to the public. Now, it is $349 a person, but it's a once-in-a-lifetime dinner, and if you were looking to blow it out, this is the place. I went to a media version of it, and ours was inspired by the film Ratatouille, and every single course tied back to the film, and the night ended with a chocolate Remy that you got to take home. And I still have mine in my fridge. It's been... Let me think. It was May 2019? May 2019, since before I had a dog. And uh, that thing is still in my fridge. For someone who has watched almost all of the home edit on Netflix and also has a 17-month-old chocolate rat living in my fridge, that is not good. That is not good. But let me tell you, even as disgusting as it is, that now that I know he's rotting in there... I'm never getting rid of him. That's how good Delicious Disney is. Now, they have two dates on the calendar. One already passed. The next one is later this year. I don't know if they're still happening, but if this is something that you're very interested in doing, I recommend checking in and possibly attending one later this year if they're doing it or next year. Now, while I'll take care of Remy in a bit, there is one other way you can get into Markham's. If you happen to befriend the right people, like, you know, the celebrities on your TV screen. Here's Valerie again. So I know that when you were dining at Markham's, there was a notable person there. Are you at all allowed to discuss this? You don't have to name names. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I can talk about it without naming names. Um, So 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 we were dining in a group and I I didn't even notice this person when I came in, though in hindsight, they were clearly right in front of me. I think I was just so trying to take it all in um, with the whole vibe of everything. So all of a sudden, people at the table start whispering. And one of the other individuals in the media is, is going, I think that's her. And takes a picture of this person, which let me tell you did not go over well. Um, but, but yeah, so there was a, a individual who was dining that night who lives in Golden Oak. Who we oh, so they're a homeowner. They are, they are a homeowner. They are there. We were told that they are there frequently. They were there with their spouse and their, um, and their child. Um, and let's see. We can say that they are a well-known game show host. Oh, my God. That we would all be familiar with from our whole lifetimes basically. Wow. Uh, so yeah. And it's, and it was, he was just out having dinner. He was having, they were having a family dinner and it was, you know, I, I've never lived in a major metropolitan area where there are a lot of celebrities around. Um, so it's always been a bit of a, a rarity, you know, for me to see someone out in public. And it was, it was really nice to just, you know, they're a regular person out in their, community you know out at their local hangout having having some muscles and just having a dinner 
Celebrity sighting! It's a given when you're discussing Golden Oak that there's going to be some secret stuff associated with it. So it just makes sense that we'd be cagey about a celebrity whom I will not name. I will not name! But it's not Drew Carey. I'll give you that one. I would have had way more superstar limo jokes within this episode. While Valerie is clearly a whiz when it comes to all things Golden Oak, she's also a major authority on Dole Whip. And well, I'll just let her take it from here. You are kind of like the reigning fact queen of Dole Whips. Uh, you wrote an incredible piece for Mike all about it. I learned yes, so many Dole things from opus. it. Yes, your Dole Whip <laughs> opus. I learned so much from it. There are so many really, really interesting details in there that I have no idea how you pulled them out. Um, I, I'd love to discuss the the Dole Whip. I don't even know if it's a controversy, but the fact that we all consider it to be a, a Disney food when really mm-hmm. Dole Whip is sold many more places. Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, for the, I interviewed, as, as you know, if you ever want to know anything about Disney food, the person you go to interview is AJ from Disney food blog. (laughs) And one of the things that I remember she told me, um, in doing this story is, yeah, you can probably get this a couple miles from your house. And it's absolutely true because, um, Menchie's and different frozen yogurt chains, like pretty much any of those places where you go and, you know, pull the pump for Froyo. They have Dole Whip on their menu at some at some point in some of their stores because it's it's Dole and Dole wants to make money. They don't want this to be an exclusive thing that just Disney has access to. It's so fascinating to me that you even got to the level where you called out the name of of the company, Kent Precision Foods Group. Like that's stuff that clearly we're not supposed to know. And you right. brought light to. <laughs> yeah, their PR person was real confused when I reached out to them. <laughs> Oh, they don't get a lot of soft serve mix requests? I don't think so. <laughs> it's just so cool to know that if you go to like a Menchie's or a, I believe Sweet Frog is mm-hmm. the other one. If yeah. you go to one of those places and you get Dole Whip or pineapple soft serve, it will be what you get in the park, But even though it could feel different. Right, right. Yeah, there's actually a place not far from me in North Carolina that they have a billboard on the interstate that says it's like a it's a barbecue restaurant. And they have on their billboard, Dole Whip served here. No way. So if you're going, I think it's it's off of, I want to say it's off I-95 in North Carolina. So if you're ever on your way to Disney and you just have a hankering and can't wait, you can get it there. This is fascinating to me because you would never see someone be like, you got to get a Mickey pretzel, like pull (laughs) off at stop 8B. It would just never happen. But Dole Whip is like kind of ubiquitous, but not just a Disney food. Now, that may be common knowledge, but what you definitely don't know the answer to is one of our long-held Disney queries. Here's Valerie again. So I have one more thing of Dole Whip to mention. So um, so anyone who's ever, or anyone who's gotten enough Dole Whips knows that um, when you start to eat it, there's just a cone of air down the center because of the way they do the swirl. And it's always so disappointing because you're not getting as much as you think. Well... At Alani, <laughs> I got a, it was one of them. I actually posted a photo of this on Instagram. Like I put it in my feed because I was so excited. <laughs> it was a solid, cil- not cylinder. What's the triangular shape cil- cone? Wow. <laughs> it was a solid cone of Dole Whip swirl with no, no air core. Now you may hear what? They pour Dole Whip a certain way? It's hollow in the middle of that swirl? But what I hear is... A mini mystery! 
Naturally, I found myself obsessed with solving this mystery, so I asked around and spoke to many current and former theme park employees, and the answer why Dole Whips have that sad hollow center is both somewhat surprising and completely obvious. Apparently, they leave the center hollow to make it appear bigger than it actually is. Womp womp. Dole Whip is always supposed to be about six ounces from what one person told me, and leaving that center hollow just makes it look more appealing. Employees are trained to swirl Dole Whip in a certain way, so it has a consistent look and the best appearance for the right amount of product. I was told that's about three to four swirls total. But what I didn't know is that sometimes they're weighed. One person told me that a leader will randomly weigh their Dole Whips about once a week, and there are even scales on site to do so. But a lot, and I mean a lot of people, told me that they regularly like to make magic and pour a little bigger of a Dole Whip into guest cups, which I love. I love that. I love them making a special memory for guests by just feeding them more delicious ice cream. Now, I tried to find out if you get more Dole Whip in a cup or in a cone, but currently the Magic Kingdom doesn't do cones and Disneyland's closed, so it's tricky. But Apparently, people often complain that the Dole Whips at Tamu Tamu Refreshments at Animal Kingdom are significantly smaller compared to Disney's Polynesian Resort and Aloha Isle in Magic Kingdom. It was also stressed to me that this is how things were done pre-COVID. Currently, the focus is completely on safety, which makes sense. So I don't believe they're being weighed as often, and I don't believe the swirls are as stringent, because safety for guests and cast members is the top priority. But yes, it is hollow inside so that you can have a cuter looking Dole Whip, but all of them are about the same amount of delicious pineapple soft serve. Mystery solved! Now, there is one final mystery I set out to solve in this episode that came my way accidentally. This one is a salty, snappy question that deserves a clearly defined answer because it's coming from one of Disneyland's most prominent guests, Tiffany Mink. She's not just a fan, a YouTuber, and a style icon, but a fixture within the Disneyland community. I profiled her for Glamour Magazine at last year's D23 Expo, and she was dressed impeccably as Imagineer Tony Baxter. Seriously, look for the photos. It's something else. Now, on September 15th, Tiff shared a photo of a jar of Clausen pickles and said, this is the closest to a Disneyland pickle you can get at home. She said she'd been slowly working through different brands all summer, one by one, to match those individually wrapped, brandless pickles sold at Disneyland snack stands to their original maker. And then... Upon finding a five-gallon tub of them for sale online, she thought they might actually be the right one. Now, we all need to find our own ways to get our theme park joy while Disneyland sits closed, and I want nothing more than Tiffany to be able to relish <laughs> in the fact that she could blissfully enjoy one of her favorite Disney snacks from the safety and comfort of her own home. So the minute I saw her tweet online, I knew this was a case for the detectives at Very Amusing. And by detectives, I, of course, mean me in all of my free time because I spent a bit too much of it on solving this case. This one was tricky, I'll tell you. So first, I reached out to Disneyland PR, and while they were unbelievably helpful given this wackadoo request, I ultimately was unable to pinpoint what brand they provide in park. So I turned to social media, and I got a lot of great tips. One led me to U.S. Foods, 
a massive food distributor that, as far as I'm aware, provides some products to Disneyland Resort. So I reached out to their press email, but knowing they're likely sensitive about releasing that information publicly, I also applied as a restaurant owner for a new account. Yes, I hope you are all prepared to wine and dine at Very Amusing, a small, poorly run bistro that serves homemade cold foam, wheels of brie, and occasionally solves food-related mysteries. The West LA Territory Manager is bound to be pretty upset that he lost this account for a budding Southern California restaurant opening mid-pandemic, but I emailed him anyway in an attempt to confirm what brand of pickles are sold at Disneyland Resort. I also deleted my email signature and signed the email Carl, thinking that would help. I don't I don't know why. I don't know what normal questions are being asked to regional distribution managers, but we'll find out if he ever emails me back. Now, PR did get back to me, but no dice there. I was told I'd have to check with Disneyland directly, which puts us back at zero. Now, I will add, Tiff was on the right track. For a time back in 2017, Disneyland sold three different types of pickles, spicy, sour, and classic. Many other brands don't publicly offer those, but Clawson does. So, I kept asking around, asking around, asking around, and finally landed on a tip from a friend of a friend of a friend and got what I believe is the absolute answer. I texted Tiff when I first heard that I might have found the certain brand, and when I got confirmation, well, I had to immediately get her on the phone. Hello, hello. Hi. How are you this Sunday morning? <laughs> I am not as good as you're about to be. Ooh, oh, I'm excited for whatever's about the whatever's gonna happen with this conversation. I am my body is ready. <laughs> Tiff, I I was able to confirm the pickle <gasps> brand for you. Right, like just happened? Yep, just happened. Oh my gosh. I need to know. I need to know. It is Vienna beef. For sure, it is? For sure. Oh my gosh, I have to go. I'm so glad that I just found out where to buy those near me, thankfully. <laughs> um, I, When you were looking into everything and just sent me that, I was like, I've never heard of this brand. What is this? How am I ever even going to find these? And thankfully, they have an easy way to find how you can get them near you on their website. So that's incredible. And you're amazing. Of course. I'm so happy I could solve this mystery for you. I hope that they still have... The Disney magic, even if you're having them out of a jar and not out of a weird wet bag. But <laughs> but if you dunk them like in a bathtub for a bit, like fill your bath with ice, wrap them individually, it might really bring you back to that Disneyland moment. <laughs> I'll have to take if they if I can only find them in spears, take four of them together, put them in a Ziploc bag, toothpick of them, I guess, to make them stick together and and see how close you can get from that, maybe. The um, things we do. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. This has made my entire week. I'm oh I'm so happy that I could <laughs> seek out this very specific answer for you. I don't know why it was so difficult. It should have been much easier. I didn't even think of Vienna, even though famously, like, they're the Chicago-style pickle. But regardless, I, I think you can now have your dream pickle at home whenever you'd like. You know what? It's the simple things in life. Really, I got my I got my ice cream that I always get from Main Street from Gibson Girl. That's currently in my freezer. I keep buying it. And now to have my pickle at home is just just 
a beautiful chef's kiss while Disneyland is closed forever, it seems. <laughs> Another mystery solved at the Disney Lady Detective Agency. In asking around, I was told that the brand at Walt Disney World, I think, is different. According to one source of mine, it's Gelo Pickles, a brand based out of Lexington, Michigan. I found that out just before we closed podcast production, so I haven't been able to fully fact check and vet it. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> and thus concludes our two-parter on all things theme park food. I hope you are inappropriately hungry from this episode and the one before it. And remember, if you have any other food quandaries or questions, I'm always here, ready and waiting to answer your calls. Hi, Carly. It's Allison, your Disney cast member. Um, I was calling because I want to know about your take on the Food and Wine Festival mac and cheeses because we know your take on the Play-Doh cheese cups, <laughs> and I am not a fan either. But I want to know if you've ever tried those mac and cheeses and what do you think about them compared to the um, – year-round mac and cheeses sold at the various other locations for the kids meals let us know um, i can't wait to hear your take about it bye one thing about me is that i don't really do food festivals i know i know i know i'm nowhere near perfect i have flaws and this is a huge one i just don't like temporary food and I never really have because you can't win. If it's bad, you just fell for a tiny dish of food that you have to eat in the boiling sun. And if it's good, great. You just found something you love that you probably can't get on your next trip. So I don't really eat the festival mac and cheeses regularly on either coast. That being said, I do love having mac and cheese at a Disney park. But it's often a little bit too fancy for me when I go outside of the bounds of your traditional kids' mac. Like the one at Chefs de France, great. And I've gotten an adult portion of the kids' one at Toledo at Grandestino Tower, which is like gussied up. But I really tend to prefer the orange liquid goo type of mac. Who's surprised? Like, give me a pail of that stuff at Hoopty Doo Review, and I am good to go. So, unfortunately, no favorites here in terms of Epcot's festivals, but I do need to shout out, strangely, the JW Marriott Orlando Bonnet Creek? I stayed there for Disney World's reopening, and this restaurant, Sear and Sea, had quite possibly the best kids' macaroni and cheese I've ever had. Ever. That might be my top choice in an off-property food festival of my very own, where I just pick and choose off a children's menu. But... No matter where we're going or what we're getting into, my very, 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 very favorite macaroni and cheese dish on property are the mac and cheese bites at Wine Bar George. I've written about them a hundred times. I've practically shouted from the balcony how good they are at that restaurant. But the reason they're so genius is because they're the halfway point between a fancy mac and cheese trying to accomplish what a budget mac and cheese does while still being special enough to be better than a kid's menu. I mean, kids love them. Adults love them. I love them. They're perfect. They're impeccably executed and they're delicious with a little bit of spice. So maybe kids don't like them. I don't know. I don't have them. I don't know what their tolerance is for spicy. <laughs> it's unsurprisingly my favorite restaurant there. 
And that's part of the reason why. I mean, George Miliotis being his own meet and greet character at a perfect dining experience helps too. But these things are just little drops of heaven. Order two plates of them, by the way. You won't regret it. It might be your whole meal, but you'll enjoy it. Hey, Carly. This is Matt O'Brien from Agawam, Massachusetts. My question is, if you could add a restaurant to any Walt Disney World or Disneyland ride, kind of like the Blue Bayou at Disneyland, what ride would it be and what would you name the restaurant? Love the show. Bye. Whoo, baby. There are 4,000 ways I could go with this absolutely perfect call and I cannot decide. I mean, do I want to eat soup and big salads out of astronaut helmets at Space Mountain? You betcha. Do I want to plus up flows in Cars Land to be like sci-fi dine-in but outdoors? Yes. But most of all, what I really, really want is a dining addition to Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor, one of my all-time favorite attractions. Now, it could be called like the Chow House or, and this doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but Cafe Terraria, like a cafeteria for all the monsters who work there. Cafe Terraria? I mean, it would be like a delicious version of cafeteria food. I'm thinking quick service with cast members in character as lunch ladies and lunch gentlemen on the opposite side of the glass, like serving you pie and being very blunt about it like at 50s primetime. I also want like pure school lunch yummies. I'm talking nachos for lunch, pizza boats, baked potatoes with all the fixins for your main meal, so much ranch dressing, and best of all, It would be character dining. Yeah. Quick service character dining. You betcha. And we're going obscure. Yeah, we got all the characters because it's a cafeteria and it fits the story. They're just there to get some grub at the cafeteria. Cafeteria. It sounds right, right? Like cafeteria. I think it sounds right. Anyway. Oh, my God. A girl can dream. Oh, now I just want that. I just want that real bad. Hi, Carly. This is Janae from Seattle, Washington. Um, just wanted to say I love the podcast and I love your Instagram feed. And um, I was wondering, which Disney property, in your opinion, has the best version of the Dole Whip? Thanks. Have a great day. Bye. Ooh, this is so tough because there are so many different ones now and different flavors that are sold in different places. So in total... Dole offers nine flavors, orange, strawberry, raspberry, mango, lemon, lime, cherry, watermelon, and our classic, pineapple. You can find orange and pineapple as well as a few others in seasonal floats at Magic Kingdom. You can find lemon at the adorable snowman ice cream stand at Disney California Adventure and a handful of others at Disneyland's Tropical Hideaway. I'll publicly state I'm not a purist. I do prefer a twist of pineapple and vanilla, and I really only get it at Magic Kingdom. Unless I'm in Animal Kingdom and I'm in the mood for a Dole Whip with rum. Not to say those are the best or only places to get it. That's just how I roll. Now, if I'm ever getting Dole Whip at Disneyland, I actually won't get pineapple. Ever. I'll skip the Tiki Juice Bar entirely and instead go for Raspberry at Tropical Hideaway next door. Partially because the line to the actual Dole Whip place stresses me out so much, but also because Tropical Hideaway's flavors feel more special to me and more like a surprise theme park treat, which, as a local, I crave more. Also, I never get afloat. Never. Never, never, ever, ever, ever. Not for me. There was this one that tempted me, the one that got away, the seasonal Kakamora float with coconut Dole Whip that I've always wanted to try and never have. But in fact, checking it, I realized that it's actually not Dole brand coconut. 
It's also made with dairy, so it's just coconut soft serve. It was my holy grail for a minute, but now knowing that it's not true Dole Whip, I'm sticking to my go-tos. Hi, Carly. This is Elena. I just wanted to say I loved the last podcast episode so, so much, and I'm so excited for part two about theme park food. So I am actually a uh, product development, research and development food scientist, which I think is why I am obsessed with all things food and all things theme parks. So it was super interesting to hear about all the research and development that goes into theme park food. Now, my question for you today is what is your ranking of the Disney World theme parks by the food options they have? And I'm not talking about like when there's festivals or when there's special events going on or when there's a Halloween party. I mean, just if you went on a plain day, no special events, what is your theme park ranking based on the food offerings and why is Magic Kingdom last in the ranking? Thanks. Love the podcast. Bye. Okay, okay, okay. Great question. Wow, 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 wow. But also, your job? What? What? How cool! I hope you weren't listening to last week's episode feeling like a mathematician watching someone try to explain basic addition because your job is so cool and I want to be asking you a million questions instead of answering yours. But okay, I will I will do my job and I will also appreciate that you added in that festivals don't count as though we both knew and understood from the get-go that clearly, regardless, the first choice is going to be Epcot. It's got everything, baby! It's Epcot! I mean, you got snacks like my favorite caramel corn from Germany, which, by the way, someone called in and asked why it wasn't included in these episodes. But the truth is, the only mystery about Germany's caramel corn is how much butter is in it. So it just didn't fit. But you have an entire theme park at Epcot dedicated to food and learning, but mostly food. I mean, I'd be happy eating almost anywhere in Epcot except for Sunshine Seasons. Y'all crazy. It's not good. (laughs) Go to World Showcase. I mean, I regularly eat a side of beans in Mexico or cobble together a meal out of desserts. And I don't even like temporary food. So for me, Epcot, just base level Epcot, or as some call it, diet Epcot, is still a culinary dream. Anything goes there. You can do whatever you want. You can eat anything. And that's why I love it. Second place? It's going to be Animal Kingdom. The truth is the trifecta of Tiffin's, Nomad Lounge, and Satuli Canteen just really elevates the cuisine of the entire park. And if it didn't, you'd still get a weird gross pile of ahi tuna nachos and they'd do the trick because they are also delicious. I don't know why they shouldn't be. And yet they are. They just got rid of one of my absolute favorite snacks, which is the Malva Cake at Tamu Tamu Refreshments. It was the perfect afternoon snack in the middle of a heat wave. I loved it so much. And even with that, I'm still giving it second billing because, oh yeah, you can find actual nacho cheese sauce here and you can buy a jumbo pretzel and Pandora to dip into it. So Animal Kingdom clearly takes the second place cake. Now, third place, sorry to roll over on your preference, but Magic Kingdom gets it for me. Skipper Canteen carries that park well and above Hollywood Studios. Yes, I know. Ronto wraps are great. Yes, I know. Docking Bay 7 is great. Yes, I know. I like to join the Clean Plate Club at 50s primetime, but I gotta tell you, even with the Starbucks at Hollywood Studios somehow being less cursed than the one at Magic Kingdom, Magic Kingdom is taken 
third. Skipper Canteen just kills so hard that it pushes it up the ranks. I mean, once you add things like Dole Whip, just Magic Kingdom is not going to rank last for me ever, which, of course, makes Hollywood Studios on the bottom. I'm sorry. I know a lot of stands are going to be upset about this, but the fried fish at Skipper Canteen has my heart and nothing will ever beat it. I mean, they serve a whole fish with teeth in the Magic Kingdom. I don't care what movie you're watching in a fake car at Sci-Fi Dine-In. They are serving a whole fish in the Magic Kingdom, and that wins every time for me. Thank you for your call, and I'm so sorry to anybody that I emotionally crushed with this ranking. That's our show! Thank you so much for listening this week, and hopefully other weeks too! Thank you to AJ Wolf, Shay Spence, Valerie Marino, and Tiffany Mink. A very special thank you also to Jason Concepcion from The Ringer, who taught me all about the NBA bubble coffee shop wars. I was a guest on his show, NBA Desktop, back when the details of the NBA at Disney World first dropped, so it was so nice to bring it full circle with this one. The Venn diagram of our careers is just apparently what goes down at the Grand Floridian in 2020, so if you're a basketball fan, definitely check his show out. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably more than familiar with AJ Wolf's work, but you can check it out on Disney Food Blog at the website, on social media, because it is the ultimate online encyclopedia for all things theme park food. Shay Spence has some great stories over at People Mag, but his Instagram is really where it's at. His whole existence is a vibe, whether it's making impressive meals or just matching his eye-catching wardrobe to his new Key West surroundings. It's so cute. Everything matches. It's amazing. He's a blast to follow online at the Shay Spence, both on Twitter and Instagram, but especially on TikTok. Full disclosure, I joined TikTok only to follow him and now only follow two accounts. I'm serious. He's all I need in my feed. And trust me, he's all you want in yours, too. Valerie Marino is one of my closest friends and colleagues, and her work can regularly be found in Condé Nast Traveler and beyond. We're often together when we're reporting on the parks, and I gotta tell you, I really miss working side by side. We text all day long, but it's just not the same. She's on Instagram at Valerie A. Marino, and a link to her stories can be found in the show notes. Or just give her a Google. If you type Disney Valerie, it's probably gonna pop up. Thank you, as always, oh my gosh, to all of our anonymous sources. I could not do this without you. Even if I don't scream your name here, I'm screaming inside my heart, one might say. You are all absolutely incredible, and you are the reason this podcast can even exist. And a special thank you to Drew Taylor of Light the Fuse podcast for lending us their theme music. It's composed by Kevin Blumenfeld, which, again, is for one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. Drew is a really good friend of mine, but I bullied him and his co-host Charles into letting me go on Light the Fuse, which is very cool because they've had some famous people from the Mission Impossible franchise on their podcast. And basically, it's only a matter of time before they get Tom Cruise himself on the podcast, and then I'll be two degrees away from Ethan Hunt, which would be unreal. Keep in mind, I am recording this while sitting in front of a Mission Impossible Fallout movie poster. So I am more than a little obsessed. 
Anyway, enough about that. Check out Drew's stories online. He's also an entertainment reporter with a penchant for diving deep into things like I do, but for animated films and Disney movies. And he will be on the show at some point. And not just because he told me to say that after he so graciously let me use his music. He will. I'm just waiting until we do something that's the right fit for him, Drew. Anyway, thank you so much again. Catch me wasting all my spare time, basically whenever I'm not doing this, on Twitter and Instagram at Carly Wiesel. You can also find me in my private Facebook group, which just crossed 5,000 members. It's so exciting. I love my family so much. Y'all the best. I wish we had a group chant that we could like recite during this portion of the podcast, like when people cheer at sports. Anyway, it's a good time. And if you have Facebook and like theme parks and friendship, you should join. The link is in the show notes every week, but just Google like Carly Facebook group or Carly Weisel Facebook group. Honestly, it's the easiest way. If you are not subscribed to Very Amusing, dude, you listened this far. What are you doing? (laughs) Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And a small angel will fall from the sky to kiss you on the cheek and say thank you. Thank you. That's obviously the angel. (laughs) Special shout outs to Brittany, Elizabeth, Disney Lovins, Heather, Jensen, Kayla, Tamarbells, Ward is hard, Kim Possible, Jaysterf, Clarissa, and everyone else who left a review for the podcast this past week. Oh my gosh, I am so grateful for all of you. You can share your own review of the pod on Apple Podcasts, and maybe I'll shout it out next week if I remember that this is maybe a new segment we're doing. Go wild! Because remember, it's permanent, and I can't remove or edit it, so have fun publicly trolling me. There was this one... This one particular review that I was dying laughing at from TR Hammy 2, Trammy 2, it said, five stars. I used to go right at Epcot, but this has taught me the error of my ways. Thank you. See, just short and sweet and also extremely funny. Thank you so much for listening, for yelling at your friends to listen, and oh, keep calling the Turo Hotline too. Remember, I sometimes hoard the calls for specific episodes, like I saved all the food-related calls for this one, so don't feel bad if you leave a message and you're like, I don't want to call back, she hasn't played my call. I will play all of them eventually, probably. So just keep calling. It's super fun. I love to get them. It makes my day, and I appreciate everything all of you do. Our podcast is edited swimmingly by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, sweetie, it's mom. Another, another very good podcast. And I can't wait for next week for the second half. It was so good. And I'm thinking about all these sweets and treats. And we're going to have to make a trip because this is crazy. I can't wait to try this stuff. And I do remember... um I went with you once or twice to where we had the fried fish, and it was outstanding, so that was good. And Wine Bar George, I love him and love the restaurant. He's so wonderful. Um, Everything else, I'm starving after hearing your episode. But I love you. It was wonderful, and I'll see you soon. Bye, honey.